Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, where I specialize in values and mindfulness-based approaches to therapy. And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University specializing in evidence-based relationship treatments. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Debbie. It's so good to see you. Good to see you, too. And it was really great to see you in person, even though it was brief out in Colorado last week. We had the chance to connect face to face instead of screen to screen. Yeah, it's great. And to meet up with our families and just share in some nice time together. So that's wonderful. It was very nice. And we have a great episode ahead on integrating yoga into trauma work. Um, but before we get started with that, you you were telling me that you have another workshop coming up in Santa Barbara. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what you have? Yeah, I'm going to be doing another workshop on September 9th from 1 to 4 p.m. at Yoga Soup. And this workshop is going to be for both professionals as well as the general public on compassionate mind training. So we're going to be doing some experiential work around developing a compassionate mind. And it's going to be a lot of fun. If you liked the uh, interview that I, the interviews that I've done uh, in the past around compassion, I think you'll really like this workshop. And you can sign up for it on my website which is drdianahill.com or through Yoga Soup, which is yogasoup.com. So hopefully I'll be able to meet some of the listeners in person there. That sounds great. And so to start off today, I think we were going to introduce this fantastic interview with with, um, Deidre Fay that you did on using yoga to address trauma. Yeah, I thought it was a great a great topic for you and I to discuss because I have my background and interest in yoga, and then you're an expert in trauma. But I thought it would be helpful in just laying the framework for the episode for you to talk a little bit about trauma and what some of the symptoms look like, as well as some of the evidence-based approaches that are out there currently. Yeah. So for some folks who experience trauma, you know, people have a lot of different responses to trauma, but some folks develop some some symptoms that that can be quite common with trauma. And that can include things like a a very intense physiological response to, you know, daily life. So it can include things like hypervigilant, just being really jumpy and startle easily, disrupted sleep, and just being really 
easy to get sort of angry or irritated. Um, and it can also lead to avoidance behavior. So avoiding trauma-related cues and reminders or situations that might be stressful. So people can find sometimes who have long-term effects of trauma that their life just gets more and more narrow because of behavioral avoidance. And it can also lead to emotional avoidance, I think, because people sometimes have this these really extreme emotions and physiological responses. They can end up being sort of numb or disconnected where they just sort of check out. So this can lead to disconnection from, you know, emotions, those intense emotions, from certain thoughts that might be related to the trauma, or from bodily sensation. So we can carry our trauma in our bodies, which is something you talk about with Deidre Fay. And what can happen is that people can get really disconnected or disembodied where they're disconnected from their bodily sensations. So those are some of the things that can happen in the long term and in response to trauma to certain people. And there are some evidence-based practices for post-traumatic stress disorder that we can just talk about really quickly. Um, Prolonged exposure therapy is one and cognitive processing therapy. And they both really work on decreasing avoidance through exposure. So prolonged exposure therapy focuses on um, exposure to the traumatic event itself and also to the emotions associated with the traumatic event. And cognitive processing therapy focuses a bit more on thoughts, but both really have this element of approaching instead of avoiding potentially, you know, scary or stressful stimuli. And over time, what happens is that the fear starts to decrease, the physiological reactivity starts to decrease, and people don't avoid as much. So they kind of get their lives back. And so those are exposure-based therapies for trauma that are are well-known and well-established. And in this episode today, Deidre Fay talks about a little bit of a different approach to working with trauma. Diana, do you want to talk about the approach that's in this episode today. Yeah, so she's using yoga and meditation in combination with a lot of attachment theory to, uh, she's really created a whole skills program that works on not only the hyperarousal, but also embodiment and uh, working on creating a life with meaning and self, more self-compassion. And she actually will guide us through a couple of yoga practices in this episode. So if you uh, stick with it and listen to the episode, she'll, she'll uh, demonstrate how that looks for her practically. And there's the in, research into yoga for or trauma and PTSD is still really in its infancy, but it's becoming um, more of an interest in the field. And just as mindfulness uh, 10 years back was a contemplative practice that became more and more research and they found certainly the benefits of, and now is much more mainstream, I predict that yoga and some of these more uh, somatic and body-based practices will also uh, show some uh, show up in the research more and, and integrated more into treatment. One of the yeah. things that I think is particularly helpful with yoga is the increasing uh, embodiment as well as interoception. So there's a, there's a lot of research in neuroscience now around interoception, which is your ability to be aware of your own body and what's happening in your body. And with trauma, people often become very disembodied. Uh, so with interoception, it's, it's very actually important for our ability to self-regulate. And when we're embodied, we're better able to connect to the present moment as well as be, be able to affect change. 
So the type of yoga and meditation practices that Deidre Fay offers in this interview are really strategies to increase our ability to have this intercept awareness and, and embodiment. I think that you'll really find it fascinating and uh, look forward to hearing more about how maybe you, Debbie, would integrate this into your own practice. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. I think it's a really interesting episode. Enjoy. Deirdre Fay, L-I-C-S-W, has decades of experience exploring the intersection of trauma, attachment, yoga, and meditation. Having meditated since the 70s and lived in a yoga ashram for six years in the 80s and 90s, Deirdre brings a unique perspective to being in the body. In the 90s, Deirdre was asked to teach yoga and meditation to those on the dissociative unit at McLean Hospital. Having amassed skill sets in trauma treatment, she's been a supervisor under the guidance of Bessel van der Kolk at the Trauma Center. Attachment theory, she has had 13 years of training with Daniel Brown. And body therapy as a trainer in sensory motor psychotherapy. Deirdre now teaches an integrative approach to psych- with which Chris Germer calls a radically positive approach to healing trauma. Deirdre founded the Becoming Safely Embodied Skills Groups and is the author of Attachment-Based Yoga and Meditation for Trauma Recovery, as well as Becoming Safely Embodied Skills Manual, and co-author of Attachment Disturbances for Adults, as well as co-author of Chapters in Neurobiological Treatments of Traumatic Dissociation. A former supervisor at the Trauma Center Sensory Motor Psychotherapy Institute trainer from 2000 to 2008, certified in internal family therapy and qualified trainer in mindful self-compassion, self-awakening yoga, and life force yoga, practitioner Deirdre Deirdre is a respected international teacher and mentor for working safely with the body. Welcome, Deirdre. I'm so glad to be here. quite a bio. Yeah. I know. I was like, ah. Whoa. (laughs) Yes. And it really highlights all the different aspects of uh, both trauma experience, history of your own experience uh, as a yogi and the teachings of Mm -hmm. of yoga and sensor motor therapies that you bring into your teachings now. So I'd love to start with just talking a little bit about how you, uh, what brought you to this work and how you came to integrate these different aspects into therapy. Yes. Well, you know, it's, it's just that life hit me upside the head. (laughs) It's really true. I was living in this ashram and I, I went, I felt compelled to go, to be honest. I didn't feel like I had any choice. There was a way of loving that was being modeled there, and I thought, I want that. And then held in that safe cocoon, my own trauma history came up, and I started looking around at so many of the people that were there working and who would come to, um, you know, uh, be there and participate as guests there. We had about 15,000 people a year that came through there. I realized there's we so many of us have the issues that I had and I this was way before really contemporary trauma theory got really well understood Bessel was just beginning to do a lot of his um, forward-thinking work so I went to school I got a master's degree and then uh, during my second year when I was still in my training at McLean Hospital the people there heard that I had lived at um, this yoga ashram and that I did a lot of meditation and yoga and they wanted me to 
see if I could teach them. So at night I'd go over to the unit and try like what worked, what didn't work. I had to see what the things that worked for me and didn't work. Because when my history came up, I had been able to do a lot of yoga and meditation and then all of a sudden I couldn't. You know, I was in my body and it felt like, you know, it never happens quite this way, but it felt like there was such a before and after. All of a sudden I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I could I didn't feel safe in my body. I just wanted to hide. I'd been teaching in front of groups of people, 150 people at a time. And I, yeah, it's like I just wanted to hide, run away. And I thought, something, what happened? So that really took me on that journey, that quest to find out what was going on with me and how could I help other people. I remember I said to somebody, this isn't worth it. This is so painful that it's not worth it for me to do it by myself or for myself. I had to figure out, if I'm going to go through this, I'm going to figure out a way to help other people. So nobody has to be as alone as I felt at that time. And so that's really what got me going. And then life sort of led me to Bethel and uh, working at that and having the incredible uh, team that we had at that time. It was phenomenal. They're still my colleagues and friends to this day. And, you know, just continuing to train and develop and um, follow that commitment. And you take a really unique perspective in integrating yoga into the actual therapy room. So in some of your, um, in your writings and in your uh, skills manual, you actually have people practice yogic poses while they're doing other somatic work and, 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 you know, the whole, the whole package of trauma work. But can you talk about why yoga in particular is helpful with trauma? Right. It's, you know, it's, I, I feel like we all need to have a, a really big toolbox. So sometimes I do postures, but often it's more the philosophy of yoga that is guiding me and allows me to hold and tolerate the immense amount of pain and suffering that people have without getting caught in it. Because what yoga says is that prana, this life force, is always leading us back home to ourselves. We're going to get sidetracked. We're going to get confused. We're going to get lost. But, but prana is saying, go here, take this left turn and just, you know, orient a little bit in this direction. Now, when there's trauma involved, it gets so loaded into the body that what happens is prana, as it's moving through our body, trying to guide us, gets stuck and jammed against the the wounds. We call them samskaras, the pains of our life, the, the knots. And prana is just like saying, okay, honey, this isn't okay. We're going to clean this out so you can get home to yourself. But that never feels pleasant or good. It's kind of like when a sculptor is grinding away to sculpture, uh, you know, something that wants to come forward. It's they're chiseling and they're pounding and they're sandblasting it. And just imagine being the person inside that's being sculpted out. It's not easy, pleasant, or uh, comfortable. But that's what prana is doing. And so that's what helped me to feel like, okay, this isn't, this torture isn't torture just to be tortured. It's not because we're being ground down to be killed off. It's, we're, we're, we're being 
we're being refined. Life is trying to say you are not this painful place. There is more. And let this let this go. Let this ease and let let this fall away so you can have more of yourself. So that's what really guides me in my thinking and in my work and then using different psychotherapy models along the way. And sometimes I'll do very simple yogic postures. You know, many of them are not about standing up or actually taking a pose, but just simple little things that are, um, that carry and allow the wisdom of their heart and their body to open up. That's really my intention. I'm more interested in, can somebody listen and relearn how to listen to themselves so that they can hear their own guidance? They're like, how's prana guiding them back to themselves? Not that I know, because I don't know specifically how their path will be unique and different. And that's where it ties into attachment theory, which is another whole piece I love, because attachment theory says there is, there is only one of you. There is only one of me. There is, we're unique in all the world. So how do we allow ourselves to grow, develop, and flourish and become that? And so that's part of what yoga does. Yoga says, we want you to be fully alive, fully expressed. And so let's take away that which isn't you so you can show up more fully. Mm-hmm. So you utilize a lot of the, uh, you know, sort of all the eight limbs of yoga, not just the, mm-hmm. the asana. Right. And I think sometimes right. when people think of, think of yoga, they think of asana or they think of the westernized uh, perspective on yoga, which is going and doing warrior two and warrior one and really what <laughs> you're, what you're doing and, and what you, you write about in your book and what I've experienced from you personally, when I um, came to one of your talks and you guided us through the, the yoga uh, principles and practices is much more of how to be um, embodied and how to use our, to look at, you know, sort of not separate our mind from our body, but really be in our body. And part of climbing mm-hmm. back in the body is part of the healing um, of the trauma. So can you, can you talk a little bit about embodiment and, and how you use that in your work as well? Sure. Well, it's, 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 I think there's um, true embodiment is not a top down. It's not a cognitive thing. But it's learning to be with what Dan Stern, the phenomenal developmental theorist, said. Uh, he called him attach, uh, vitality affects. Uh, Susan Opposing talks about them as pulsatory energy. So how do we touch that underneath the thoughts, underneath the feelings, even underneath or within sensations? What is this other energy that flows? If we look at um, how does air move? Like can we, sometimes we see a cloud move and we can see little dust particles in the air. Like how do we become entranced with that? But how do we see that inside of us? So that we begin to become aware of the rhythms and the pulsings and the gurglings that are part of just having organs and blood moving through our veins and listen and that's such a funny word it's not like we listen with our ears but listen with our felt sense we tune in we sense what Gensland calls our felt sense so that we can 
listen and be with that and let that begin to move. And that's really what prana is, and that's what the old yogis did and how they even developed the whole idea of yoga is that they would be in a deep state of meditation and something would arise and they would let movement arise out of that internal state. So it's the same thing uh, with training ourselves to be more fully embodied is how do I know how not to just react out of my habits, but to be guided from this force of trueness that wants to emerge and help us and attune us to where we need to go. What are some of the practices that you would work with somebody on to help them get get more embodied? The first thing is really what I teach in the Becoming Safely Embodied Skills are what is a thought, what is a feeling, and what is a body sensation. Mm-hmm. So many times people are afraid to even enter the body because they don't, you know, what's there. But learning those distinctions, how a thought is different from a feeling, and that you don't have to be overrun by feelings, and that you can control or be have some mastery with your feelings, and then tuning into sensations. And then when you have that, can you sort out what are the facts of the situation? What are the interpretations we create around all those different facts? Those begin to develop some mastery. So somebody, instead of being plunged in a vortex of overwhelm or disorganization, they begin to make sense of what's going on. And as that happens, then you can begin to start unpacking triggers. And instead of always being triggered by life, you begin to see, oh, this is happening because something's out of proportion to the moment. It must be connected to my history in some way. It must be an old, undigested memory or a feeling state coming through. And as those things start happening, it's much easier to be in the body. And then I teach a lot about using meditation skills to mind being able to name what's going on, being able to focus on where you want to go with concentration practices, self-compassion, you know, having compassion for ourselves just for being in a human body and for the pain that is involved of, of just being alive. And then learning how the simple practices of non-duality, of creating space inside and noticing the space instead of the the um, the complications that are there. So those are sort of sequential paths that I take to get people there. And you also talk a lot about the, the breath in your in your books as well. And yes. I love some of the breathing, yes. the really simple breathing practices. I think one of them you call, is it the six-sided breathing? Where you oh, breathe? six sides of the breath. Yes, right. I love that one, which is sometimes um, when we're, you know, doing breathing practices, just having some something to focus on that, that um is concrete. So in that practice, you you focus on breathing up and down, and then you focus on breathing side to side and front and back. And it's a really nice practical uh, breathing practice for maybe somebody that is just finding their breath for the first time or, you know, being able to explore where in your body your breath can go, which is a grounding practice as well. I'm so glad you found it. And I have a couple free versions on my website somewhere. So if people want that, they can try it out. Okay, great. And we'll put links to your website and all your materials with the episode as well. So there's, um, there's just a lot of different, I think, 
what strikes me about your work is how you're taking all this information and really integrating it into uh, a, a, a trauma treatment. So taking the attachment theory, taking the sensory motor, taking the yoga and kind of creating, seeing where there's overlap. And there's actually a lot of, uh, there is a lot of overlap into between, between them, but making it sort of a narrative that makes sense that I appreciate. Oh, I'm so glad you found that to be true. <laughs> I worked hard on that. Well, I think for me as a as a therapist, I have had a long interest in yoga and I've certainly had my own practice, but I've always been a little bit hesitant to bring that into the therapy room. I think with mindfulness coming into more Western approaches to therapy and being studied in that way, a door opened up a little bit, but it's... You know, certainly in group formats, I felt more comfortable, but individually one-on-one, one place that I have noticed that I get stuck is that when I want to do one of these, um, you know, practices that I'm not sure how the client's going to receive it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure also not wanting to impose, mm-hmm. you know, a yogic philosophy, if that is against some of their own personal philosophy or that there's going to be resistances there. How do you, how do you find people receive it and what is your entry point in bringing this work to people. Right. That's such an important, that's such an important question to be exploring. I, I guess I can just call it life force and how, um, like to me, it's very simple from the attachment here. We talk of I, I certainly talk about protest. We get up against something. We say it shouldn't be like this. And we get all upset that life is that way. Um, how do we know inside of us that it shouldn't be that way? If it should be that way, it would be that way, right? So something deep inside of us knows it should be different. So the attachment theory calls it protest. We can also call it prana hitting up against a samskara, but it's all different language for the same thing. Uh, but within that, as we're protesting, what's coming up is some need, some longing, some wish for life to be different. That's what we have to listen to. That's prana guiding us. But it's all already in the body. You know, it's it's there. And then how can we turn towards some, something that we want to move toward? How instead of just holding on to this old, uncomfortable thing or the thing that causes us anguish, it becomes a burden. How do we begin to orient towards something better or more fulfilling or more satisfying. And that's where we want to turn toward. So it's all Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras would call it the, you know, he's in the middle of his book, he talks about go toward the, the opposite. And I say, well, okay, I, the opposite is one thing, but I needed nourishment. So how do I go toward what's more nourishing? Not just the opposite of it, but something that's more satisfying, more life-fulfilling. But it's all... It's, it's kind of like, the, to me, it's like the most normal thing in the world. It's just that yoga has a philosophy about how to do that in the body. It's grounded in uh, centuries of understanding. But it, to me, it's very much the same thing as attachment theory. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I, um, I guess I'll probably, if, there, if I have any worries or hesitation about people... Um, feeling uncomfortable with something, I orient them toward the attachment theory. It's, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Same but different. In speaking about the turning towards 
what you want in your life. You did a really wonderful practice with us uh, in the workshop I attended with you of the modified half archer. And it was, right. it was, can you describe that practice a bit? You also did the Anjali oh, Mudra practice. Yeah. Right. The, um, well, what I love about the modified half archer is it's about orienting towards something. So being mindful, naming what it is I want, being able to concentrate and direct all my attention and focus on that one thing. So raising one arm out, maybe the left arm out, and pointing to that, focusing. It's so important in, uh, to have that level of concentration, to concentrate where I want to go. And then from the attachment theory, to be able to reach toward it. Reaching is such an embodied experience of going towards something and drawing it in. So you reach toward that with the other hand, with the right hand, and then draw it in, draw it in slowly down into the body, into the heart, opening up the heart, stretching wide open, you know, opening up the ribs and the chest so that the body begins to receive in this new information so that that which we, we want, what we're longing for is no longer out there, but we make contact with it in here. It's so important that we learn to slowly take in a little bit more of the nourishment. You know, we're, we're trained to reject nourishment and say, oh, I've had enough, thank you, that's fine. Or, oh, I can't really, or um, I'll, people will think I'm full of myself or I'm narcissistic or, you know, X, Y, and Z. There's a thousand things that we say to dismiss it. But learning to just take in a little bit more, let that, it's like returning to our own state of goodness. So it's in that that we just open up and breathe and just uh, come home to ourselves, drinking it in deeply. And then both hands coming together at the chest as a blessing and an offering of yes. yes. We call it sealing it in uh, the Mahamudra practices of meditation, we seal that movement, we seal that with, yes, this is the way it should be, this is what should be. And then, you know, just let our body remember that. Once we gain some body memory around it, then it's more automatically there in our regular everyday life. We don't have to think about it because the body is already primed to move in that direction. Right. Because when you do it experientially like that, I mean, I could say, I went to your whole talk, I probably retained, I don't know, 30% of the material, right? Because that's about how much my brain, you know, I have all the notes, so I can refer back to it. But (laughs) I retained 100% of the modified half archer, Mm. you know, like Mm. my body being able to do that point, pull it towards my heart, put my hands on my heart. And actually that and it didn't, you know, it's a couple minutes of that exercise. But it's very different having that experience than just talking about what it is that you want. Mm. And I think yeah. that's where I think that's also this, the it seems that somatic experiencing is, is very much at the core of a lot of um, trauma therapy now that it, a lot of right. the trauma resides in the body and that we actually need to go to the body to heal the trauma. As right. Well. It's not all in the right. head. Yeah. Well, what happens is the trauma gets located in the body. It's imprinted so strongly. And if we look at positive psychology, what we're looking at is we need to have as strong of a of an experience to be able 
to draw the attention away from the pain and toward this new thing. Now, most people will say, oh, I can't, I can't, because we're so used to, we're habituated to feel this painful wound. I totally get it. But if we're wanting to, as a practice, to cultivate something else, to first balance out the pain, but then have the nourishing opposite be more compelling, more of a draw, more magnetic, we have to literally practice that Mm -hmm. and bring our attention there and concentrate on it and let that become the new body norm for us. Mm -hmm. Which brings to the other practice, the Anjali Mudra, which is I also retained 100% of. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But can you describe that one? Because it's also about that nourishing opposite that you're alluding to. Sure. Well, people probably know it's the prayer position at the, the heart. It's a, you know, it's a simple thing. We, it's in amongst so many traditions. And so what I, I invite people to do is first change their center of gravity away from their head and thinking and drop into their heart so that that already has them locate a little bit more in the center of their body. So bringing that attention down into their heart, breathing a little bit. And then noticing what it is that's creating anguish or upset or discomfort. And instead of holding it in the body, there's many different models. Now we practice externalizing it, taking it from inside outside. So what I have people do is take whatever that is on the inside and put it on the outside, holding it in one of their hands. So let's say I'm feeling anguish about something. I put that anguish in my left hand. And not just as a thought experiment, but to really feel and sense that anguish out there. Let it become heavy and full and pressing into my left hand so that my left hand is literally having the felt experience of that rather than being in my heart and my chest and my belly. It's out there in my hand. And then to explore, well, what would be the nourishing opposite of that? whatever is causing the upset or the anguish or the distress or the shutdown, what would be the opposite of that? And there's no right answer. It's just to explore and begin a conversation. So I put that nourishing opposite in the other hand, say in the right hand. And I, again, it's about feeling and sensing that as much as I can in the right hand. Well, at the same time, feeling in the left hand, whatever I have there and dropping into my heart. So staying centered in my heart, in my spine, in in my whole body, my torso at that point, what happens if I begin to bring those two hands together, the left and the right? People talk about starting a dialogue process, that something goes on there, that there's often they have... Um, never considered the kind of conversations that could go on. Sometimes people can only bring their hands two inches together. and It's like too much going on. That's okay. You just hang out there. Let that conversation begin. It's a process of linking, of reconsolidating something rather than leaving it um, separated inside of ourselves. So it's about externalizing and then learning how do we begin to link and reconsolidate it. And then slowly, and sometimes it takes over many practices, slowly bringing the hands together. It's not, it's not the physical act of bringing the hands together, it's the 
psychological embodiment of these differences and letting them have contact and creating some kind of contact between them and then being open to whatever it is and then again feeling that um, making contact at the heart with a moment of gratitude for whatever came up and then having people journal and write about it to help bring forward whatever kind of insights or difficulties are there because sometimes the next layer of difficulty arises and so you just keep opening and welcoming opening and welcoming and inviting integration to happen while staying centered in the heart and what's amazing with that practice is that when you do that first process of physicalizing and and moving it out of your body into your hand that's very much a that's also very much a practice of you know like an act where we do some um diffusion where there's a little bit of separate little bit of space between you and that thing that feels like it's taken over you and you can actually feel the difference in the weights in your hands mm, it's isn't like that something it's, it's that's so, right right yeah you can feel that the weight actually feels like you're holding something heavy thank you for sharing both of those with us oh so glad right uh, can you can you talk a little bit about shame because that's another uh, you know aspect of trauma that I think uh, is very a core symptom that can show up, but I think also is just prevalent even among people that aren't experiencing or haven't experienced trauma. Uh, can you speak to how you work with shame and uh, sure. yeah, how you define it? You know, maybe we could think about shame as a attachment wound because. Shame is so much about there's something wrong with me, and it's a disruption of the sense of self, that there is, um, uh, yeah, something wrong with me. And if we have a secure self, we have a buffer against shame. But when shame is so toxic and takes us down, it, you know, because shame can be self-writing, it can help us move in a better direction. It could be a learning character. It can be small amounts of shame. It's like, no, you shouldn't do that. And when we don't collapse into feeling horrible about ourselves, then it's like, oh, right, I, I, I shouldn't have said that or done that, or I should have been thoughtful about the other people. But where shame becomes so distressing is when we obliterate ourselves, when we feel like there's something wrong with me that nobody loves me or wants to be with me or respects me or cares about me, all of us. And those are all attachment wounds. So from my point of view, so much of shame is really the attachment wound coming up, but it comes out so powerfully and uh, aggressively in its physiological distress that we are just taken down by it. And so the hardest thing is learning how to, in the midst of that kind of self-beating up, to bring some kind of positive kindness or goodness or respect or a valuing. And those are the antidote. Any of those positive attachment traits are antidotes to this level of shame. And when I was in South Africa right after I gave a talk in, um, oh gosh, that would have been in the 90s, right after the Truth and Reconciliation was there. And somebody came up to me afterwards and told me about a tribe that they worked with. And 
she said that when somebody does something wrong or they, that the tribe doesn't like or appreciate or value, they bring this person out into the middle of the circle. And, you know, anyone who has a trauma background, like thinking, oh, my God, this is going to turn out terribly. But what they ended up telling me is that the tribe stands around this person and tells them all the wonderful things about them and remember stories of when they did good things and how much they see the best in this person. And they do this on and on and on and on. And I thought to myself, wow, wow, how incredible. It's like it's a remembering of who you really are, that you're not this horrible being, but that you are so much more than that. And do we ever do that for ourselves? No, usually we don't. It's a training to do that. How? What would our culture be like if we did that for each other? In the safely embodied learning community, so much of what the people there are learning to do with each other is to provide this kind of goodness, a buffer zone, to so people can, instead of collapsing into the absolute horribleness, to feel like they have some sense of, the love and kindness and care around them. Oh, it just is so painful what happens with shame. That would be a wonderful practice maybe we could all do with each other and, and with our oh children, right? So right. I, I love right. that. One by one yeah, we do that. It's just like taking out a different highlighter and highlighting because when when shame is activated, it's like highlighting all the I am bad, I am bad, I am bad and looking for evidence and, and hiding oh, and, and, right. and not exposing parts right. of ourselves so we don't get any new information or new learning. And if we could offer... A, di- a, a different thing to highlight to, as, as you said, to remember who we truly are, our true nature, it, that that right. would be really powerful. Uh, uh, would be. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about the embodied skills, the safely embodied skills program? And because it seems like that's sure. something that you can offer to people that are interested in learning more about this work. Sure. I do a number of different online courses. One is the Becoming Safely Embodied Skills Online, and the other is a, what we call Living Untriggered. It's about healing trauma using meditation skills. And those are really about just learning simple, everyday, practical skills that you can use to just day by day, minute by minute change. And they're they're designed to be small, not not big things, not things that are really complicated. They're actually really small. And uh, But if we use them over and over again, they make all the difference. They're, the Becoming Safe and Body Skills are actually the, what I used to really heal myself way back in the day. And um, when I started teaching them, I was so like, couldn't believe that they helped other people because I had taken them so much for granted, but they make a huge difference. I mean, people just like how it organizes a disorganized mind is incredible. And then using the meditation skills, not the big highfalutin ones, but how to really take mindfulness and implement it in an everyday way, how to take self-compassion, how to take um, concentration skills. Because think about it when we're, when we're triggered, we don't have any concentration. We're tossed and turned and pulled all over the place. 
same thing with shame, right? So we need, it is vital for each of us to learn how to have deepen into a concentration practice. So when the, 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 the trigger comes in and tries to pull us off course, we can say, I'm going there, I'm going there. And I am so focused on going there that all that other stuff um, falls a little bit more into the background. Wonderful. And you also have a book for therapists. So those two courses would be for uh, mental health providers that want to learn for themselves, uh, actually practice it on themselves, but also trauma survivors uh, as well. And then you have a book that uh, that is for therapists of how to do this work if you're interested in learning on a deeper level about attachment theory, about trauma, and you go through a number of the, the navigate number of symptoms and responses to trauma, things like skills for helping clients be in their body, skills for helping them, you know, set boundaries, and really weaving the attachment theory with the yoga practices where you break down scripts, scripts that therapists can use and practices that they can try, right, that I've, I've been kind of pulling out little pieces and trying on my own after reading your book. And it, it's also practice for the, it's practice for the therapist of how to, you know, at least for me, how to lead someone through this and where people get stuck. And there's a lot of learning uh, in just the, in doing this work as well. But your book is a great resource and full, 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 full of information <laughs> as well as practical practical stuff at the end of each chapter. So that mm-hmm. book is, um, it's actually fairly newly out. I think it just, it just came out, right? It was out last year, right? Just, yeah. And when uh, Norton actually asked me to write the book and I said, I'll only write it if I can write it for people, not just for therapists. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's an academically researched and it's got, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's based on all the literature, but I wanted the voice of it to be, uh, something that inclu- included everybody. So, mm-hmm. and that's that called, nobody's left behind. Yeah, and that's called uh, attachment based yoga and meditation for trauma recovery. Uh, right. If you want to look that one up. Yeah. So, I guess I have you know one last question, which is, where do you see or the field of psychology or the field of trauma therapy recovery going? Oh, that's such a good question, and I'm conflicted about it because one of the great problems culturally that we have, societally that we have, is that good trauma treatment is expensive. It takes a lot for a therapist to train and really learn how to be with uh, trauma and help the healing. It takes a lot of supervision and consultation, so it's expensive. The training of it is. And insurance doesn't cover a lot anymore. So I think there's a horrible bifurcation that's going to happen where um, the people who need it the most aren't going to be getting it. That's part of the reason why I started pioneering ways online to do things and create healing possibilities online. So to make it a little bit more ecumenical and available to people because individual psychotherapy is... um, is a privileged thing now. And uh, anything that we can do to make that a broader base is so important. So there's that whole piece. And then I think that we're moving 
a, I'm not sure, away from. But there's old models of therapy, that, especially with trauma treatment, that's very much about excavating the wound and being with the pain of it. And I think there is value in that, but we, we need to also balance it with is this sense of goodness and kindness and compassion and balancing out the pain because people can only take so much pain before they're crippled by it. You need to also help people remember the goodness, their playfulness, their delight in being delighted in and all the positive attachment pieces so that people have some buoyancy to deal with the pain. It makes me think of John Gottman's ratio. You know, he says with couples, you need to have for every one bad thing that happens, you need to have five good things in the emotional bank account. And I feel like it's very true around trauma treatment. For dealing with one painful episode, you need to have a lot of good positive things in the bank. And we pay less attention to that in treating trauma. And I think that's certainly what I'm really committed to creating more of. Well, thank you. And thank you for bringing so many um, resources to people that are struggling with trauma and then also the many helpers out there that want to help people through it. So I really appreciate you as a pioneer in integrating yoga, meditation, attachment theory. I love your work and I'm just really honored for you to come on the show and delighted to talk with you and continue our relationship. So thank you so much. You are welcome, Diana, and thank you. And thank you for doing all this. Again, this is one way that more and more people can begin to awaken to what could be possible and realize that there is a way to heal. And you guys are doing an enormous job at providing that. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you. And I will put all the links to all your resources on our website and on this uh, podcast, and we'll be um, connected in the future. So thank you so much, Deirdre. Yay. Yay. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens. Mm-hmm.